Welcome, true crime fans. I'm your host, Teeth. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Hello, everybody. Big thank you to Olivia for recommending today's case. And when you guys finish this horrific serial killer story and are possibly looking for more episodes if you're all caught up on Going West, you can subscribe on Apple subscriptions or patreon.com slash Podcast. Links are in the episode description as well to receive 86 full-length episodes, including the one we released just yesterday on the DuPont de Ligones murders. And that is our longest bonus episode yet at one hour and 20 minutes. And there's no ads in the bonus episodes. Yeah. And that story has just perplexed us since we heard about it a few years ago. It's basically about a French family who goes missing, but when loved ones receive a mysterious letter in the mail claiming that they moved out of France, they had their home checked. And most of the family's bodies were found, except one of them, who police began looking for immediately, unsure at first if they were a victim or the killer. It's truly an unbelievable story, and it's our latest bonus episode on Apple subscriptions and Patreon. Yes, and again, that is the DuPont de Ligones murders. So thank you guys in advance for checking that out. Actually, on Apple, we have a three-day free trial so you can try before you buy. Yes, so go check that out, guys. All right, this is episode 297 of Going West, so let's get into it. We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. A podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The Jordan Harbinger Show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes that you're going to find interesting. Jordan is super charismatic and well-voiced, so I loved listening to his recent episode with Susan Casey called Unraveling Mysteries in the Ocean's Darkest Depths. It was so creepy and interesting, and he goes across every category with other episodes like Romance Twister, My Mister Once Dated My Sister, or his monthly Skeptical Sunday episodes about controversial topics from crystal healing to cannabis to Ouija boards. There's something for everyone. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. It has been 13 years since the West Mesa murder case was uncovered. A single bone found on the West Mesa. When the digging was done, the remains of 11 women were found. This person may have been charming or friendly in order to build trust or a relationship of some kind with the women first. 
Investigator Liz Thompson is describing the suspect in the West Mesa murders. This person is a predator. Back in 2009, authorities uncovered the bodies of 11 women, with one of them being pregnant on the West Mesa near 118th Street. The West Mesa murders horrified the Metro and puzzled police. Our sisters and mothers and friends were killed and buried on the West Mesa. If we don't keep reminding people that this happened, it's going to happen again. On February 2nd, 2009, a New Mexico woman named Christine Ross was walking her dog Ruka by a dried out wash near Dennis Chavez Boulevard and 118th Street in Albuquerque. Now this area, which is part of the Mesa Desert, is about 20 minutes outside of downtown, but it sits on the edge of the city limits. And past that border are miles of desert that are said to feel remote and incredibly desolate. Now, during Christine's walk in this area, her dog Ruka picked something up and brought it to her. And she was shocked when she saw that it looked like a large bone that was big enough to be human. Now, she wasn't sure if it was cause for alarm or not. So she sent a picture to her sister, who funny enough, was actually a nurse. And when her sister confirmed that it was, in fact, a human femur bone, Christine notified police. Within hours, the entire area was secured because little did she know in the moments her dog picked up that bone, Christine had stumbled upon a shocking mass grave that would expose the seedy underbelly of various crimes against women in Albuquerque. While holding a mirror to its police force and inhabitants, revealing how fickle their sympathy could be. Investigators initially believed the bones may be prehistoric, but they were brought to a medical examiner to confirm that they were both human and recent. By the end of the day on Monday, February 2nd, 2009, multiple bones were recovered from the site, some which were duplicates, meaning investigators had at least two murders on their hands. But as they expanded their search area, that number would continue to grow, and police would announce that they believed a serial killer was stalking the area and preying on some of the city's inhabitants. Between 2003 and 2006, over 20 young women of Hispanic and Latina descent were reported missing from this area. The women disappeared from an area commonly known as the War Zone, encompassing the neighborhoods of Elmer Homestead, South San Pedro, Fair West, La Mesa, and Trumbull Village in East Albuquerque. According to the demographics of this area, about half the residents live below the federal poverty line and the rate of violent crime is so high that the average age of death is just 42 years old. That's wild. So wild. And drug use, of course, is very rampant in this area as well, as New Mexico has one of the highest drug-related death rates in the entire country. Dating back to 2001, Albuquerque Vice Detective Ida Lopez began noticing a trend of young Hispanic and Latina women disappearing from this area. 
Among missing persons reports, she found 16 women who fit this profile, and within the next few years, the list climbed to 21. Ida mused, quote, This is someone who had access to the women. This is somebody who was very comfortable with the place that he buried the girls, had concealment. It's someone who prays, who's out there, who's a predator. These women were loved. Each one of them has a unique story, and their families want answers, and we're dedicated to finding those answers. And Ida began investigating these disappearances long before they resulted in the discovery of many of these missing women that were buried in the desert, but found few answers until they were found. And let's actually discuss that now. So in August of 2005, so a few years before the bodies were uncovered, police opened an official investigation and compiled a list of missing women with similar backgrounds and circumstances spearheaded by, of course, Detective Ida Lopez. Then, on September 15, 2007, so less than two years before the remains were found, the missing women received their first widespread publicity when the Albuquerque Tribune published an article detailing the silent crisis of Albuquerque's missing women. The article was simply titled, The Missing. But still, even media attention wasn't enough to locate the missing girls and to create the awareness that they deserved. That is, until the girls were finally recovered. And because of the various stages of decomposition in which the bodies were found, it took a year for all the victims to be identified, which we're going to get into later. In total, nine women, two teenage girls, and the remains of one fetus were recovered from the site. Now, we're going to tell you guys about all the victims in this story one by one, and then we'll get into the full investigative aspects of the cases. But of course, it's important that we shine a light on each victim and tell their story before we get into the insane suspects in this case. So first, Sunday, May 11th, 2003, was the last day that friends remember seeing Monica Condelaria. She was last spotted near the corner of Atrisco and US Route 66, which cuts through Albuquerque and continues west to Gallup. This intersection, which is situated on the banks of the Rio Grande River, which also sliced through downtown, was just 7 miles, or 11 kilometers, from where her body was recovered on the West Mesa. Monica's friends reported her missing after they began to hear rumors that she had been killed and buried in the desert, which was an eerie rumor and tragically turned out to be true although detectives weren't able to trace the rumor back to its origin at that time. I mean, yeah, that's so weird to, th like, who started that? And yeah, how did who, that get spread around? Exactly, and how were they not able to trace it back? I mean, it's just kind of mind-blowing. But anyway, let's move on. Police seemed to write off her disappearance at the time due to the fact that she had been a sex worker and, in their words, lived a high-risk lifestyle. But let's discuss what we know about her. Monica Diana Condelaria was born on June 20th, 1981 in Albuquerque. And in her 22 short years, she saw her fair share of heartbreak. She had already lost her father, Gabriel, who died when Monica was just a teenager. And then her young daughter, Reina, who sadly died at birth. In addition to her mom, Isabel, and brother, Gabriel Jr., she left behind a young son named Michael. Monica's obituary reads, quote, Monica enjoyed laughing, joking, taking care of babies, and spending time with her family. She will be remembered as a loving daughter, mother, granddaughter, niece, 
cousin, and friend who will truly be missed. Her disappearance was investigated by the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Department, but quickly this case went cold. When her remains were finally turned back over to her family, Monica's mother Isabel held a beautiful memorial with hundreds of attendees. Isabel remembered her daughter's bright spirit and the light that she brought to the lives of all who knew her. The next young woman to go missing was 27-year-old Doreen Marquez. Now, she was last seen in October of 2003, so five months after Monica went missing. But reports conflict as to where exactly she went missing from. So her missing persons report states that she was last seen dropping off one of her children at school, which was at the Calvary Christian Academy near the University of New Mexico campus. But contradicting reports have said that she was later spotted walking by herself in the Borellis neighborhood of Albuquerque, which is two and a half miles or about four kilometers away from the school. So police have not yet nailed down exactly when or where she disappeared. Doreen was born on August 31st, 1976 in Albuquerque to parents Dorothy and David, and she had three siblings named Dorothy, Julie, and Joe. Doreen graduated from West Mesa High School, where she had been popular and well-liked, and she was on the cheer team. She went on to have two daughters named Destiny and Mercedes, and was known in her community for the very lavish birthday parties that she would throw for them. And her family and friends still reminisce about how put together she was, with one friend, Frederica, saying, quote, She always did her hair. She always did her nails. She always looked beautiful. This girl was gorgeous. Doreen's family don't remember her experimenting with drugs until closer to the end of her life. But when her boyfriend went to prison, she was really struggling to take care of the girls on her own. So, becoming entirely overwhelmed, her family says that she began using. Frederica said, quote, It's not like her lifestyle was like that her whole life. It wasn't. And actually, her family and friends noticed the change in Doreen the last year of her life. Her sister Julie remembered, quote, She lost her apartment, so she came to live with me, and I was working graveyards, and while I was at work, she was having parties at my house. I found a syringe with heroin in it in the couch. So I just told her, you know, it's better if you just go because I have kids at my house 24-7. So whenever you feel like you're not going to use or you just want somewhere to come and shower and eat or whatever, my door is open. And she never came back. Frederica said that she begged Doreen to stay with her the last time that she saw her friend, knowing that Doreen was just in a very bad place and fearing that something bad would happen to her. Frederica said, quote, I will never forget that day. It's stuck in my head forever because that was the last memory of her. I told her, please don't leave. Just stay here with me because I'll help you, whatever it is. And she's like, you can't. I said, yes, I can. We will get help. If I can't, we will get it. But please don't leave. And she told me, I'll be back. I promise I'll be back. She told me she promised she'd be back, but she never came back. Doreen's sister Julie walked the streets just hanging posters, talking to locals in the drug trade who may have seen her or known her sister, and reported her missing three separate times. 
The fourth time Julie went to speak with investigators, she met with Ida Lopez, who was handling all the other missing young women from the area. And Ida said that the previous reports hadn't even been completed. So it just seemed like they just completely fucked off that report. Yeah, exactly. And Julie said that they had put no interest into it at all and that when the bodies were found on the West Mesa that she just knew that her sister was there and she was. While police believe that she was potentially engaging in sex work to fund her drug addiction, Doreen was never confirmed to have done so. She was buried in Roswell, New Mexico, near where her brother and some of her extended family live, and her daughters reportedly frequent the grave to decorate it with butterflies and wind chimes in her memory. Months later in early 2004, 24-year-old Victoria Chavez went missing, though some reports state that it could have been as far back as June of 2003 when she was last seen in public. It was almost a year before Victoria's mother reported her missing because Victoria's visits were pretty infrequent and her mom just wasn't really sure if foul play was involved at this time. But her remains were the first to be uncovered at the burial site. Victoria Ann Grace Chavez was born on May 20th, 1979 in Albuquerque. Like the previous women who disappeared before her, she was also a mother. When her identification was confirmed, her mother said through tears, quote, It's just hard. Every day you think about this. Every day it never goes away, and I just want closure. It's been too long. I just want to say to these people, they have a conscience. I know you, and someone knows who did it. Come forward, please. We need closure. At her memorial, her stepfather said, quote, To have them come and knock on my door, I was devastated. I never thought that it would end like this. I just had that hope. Victoria also struggled with drug use and had worked as a sex worker. The inscription on her gravestone reads, quote, Beloved daughter, mother, and sister, she was loved so much. A short while after Victoria was last seen, a 27-year-old woman named Veronica Romero was reported missing by her family on Valentine's Day, 2004. So February 14th, 2004. She was last seen getting into a white pickup truck at the intersection of Wyoming Boulevard and Central Avenue near the Trumbull Village neighborhood. Her family never saw or heard from her again after this. Veronica was born on June 19, 1976 to parents Mary Jane and Larry. She left behind five beloved children and a large extended family. When her remains were found, a friend named Desiree, whom Veronica called her soul sister, told the press, quote, We're putting her to rest finally, but considering what's been done, and now we're finding out more of what's happened to her, and it's sad. She was hurt real bad. Two months later, two women went missing at the same time, and they happened to be cousins. So this is 15-year-old Jamie Barela and 25-year-old Evelyn Salazar, and they were at a family barbecue when they left to take a walk to a park, and they never came back. Neither of them did. They were last seen on San Mateo Boulevard Southeast and Gibson Boulevard Southeast, which is right on the edge of the war zone that Heath mentioned earlier. Jamie's mother, Jane Perea, remembered, quote, They were supposed to return in about an hour, but they never came home. We called police, made flyers, but years later, still no answers. 
Now the crime scene on the West Mesa has given us a new reason to worry. If it is her, you just took an innocent person away. So obviously Jane was absolutely shattered after losing her daughter and niece in one day, but she really held out hope that their remains were not among those recovered in the desert, of course just hoping that they were out there somewhere alive. Shortly before her daughter was the last victim identified, Jane said sadly, quote, I hope he gets what he deserves if they ever find him. Because how would he like it if this was his sister, his mother, anybody he knew? I need to know because I have colon cancer and I don't know about my situation. If she's okay, I'll go in peace. God, this poor family. But sadly, Jamie, like I said, she was the 11th and final victim identified as being taken by the killer coming to be known as the West Mesa Bone Collector. Now, this doesn't change the fact that all these women were victims, but strangely, Jamie was the only victim who had no known history of drug use or sex work. And to me, it just seems like the killer acted on opportunity. Like, it's likely that some of the other women who were sex workers were maybe picked up while they were working or just while they were walking down the street, which seems to be the case for Jamie. Like, this guy is just preying on the streets. And I think the common denominator here really is just that these women were either alone and or vulnerable. Yeah, and also the fact that a lot of, or at least people believe that a lot of these abductions took place near or around the war zone. But let's talk about Jamie's life for a moment. Jamie Yvonne Catalina Barela was born on September 28, 1988 in Albuquerque. A school friend remembers her as sweet and quiet, but that she was always smiling. She loved the music of Selena and loved to sing and dance. And according to her family, she loved sports, books, and butterflies. Jane reminisced, quote, I think about her every day. She was very special to all of us. Because of her lack of criminal history, it's sadly believed that Jamie was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jamie's cousin Evelyn, who disappeared alongside her, however, was actually known to police and had been convicted on one past count of prostitution. Evelyn Jesus Maria Salazar was born on November 27, 1978, to a mom named Myra, and she had two brothers named Michael and Carlos. She also went on to have two daughters named Mariah and Angel. One friend remembered her as joyful, loving, and gregarious, and that she absolutely adored being a mom. She loved spending time outdoors, especially camping, and she was known for her excellent cooking skills. The next victim, who was last seen around May of 2004, is arguably one of the most tragic victims of the West Mesa, as she was let down by a system designed to protect her. Solania Tareen Edwards was born on November 26, 1987 in Texas, and shortly before Solania was born, her mother had actually committed a murder for which she began serving a prison sentence when Solania was just two years old. Three years after that, her father was charged with aggravated sexual assault against a minor, and then he was put in prison. So at that point, Solania entered the foster care system, but things unfortunately only got worse for her. 
She found herself in a foster care group in Lawton, Oklahoma as a preteen, but then in August of 2003, she was reported missing from the group home in Oklahoma after she ran away, and she was classified as an endangered minor. Now, some investigators and reporters believe Solania to be a victim of human trafficking and that she was coerced into sex work as a teen, just becoming a victim of her unfortunate circumstances. She was later spotted in Aurora, Colorado at the Ranger Motel on Colfax Avenue, which is known to be a pretty seedy motel. And this is also an area that is known for drug use and prostitution. Solani was last seen with three sex workers named Lucretia, Ty, and Diamond, and went by the aliases Mimi or Chocolate. But how she wound up in Albuquerque is still a mystery. Solani was 15 years old when she was reported missing from Oklahoma, but is believed to have been 16 when she was last seen in Colorado and subsequently killed in New Mexico. And her body was eventually identified by her dental records. She was the only black victim and was the only victim from out of state. About a month after Solania was last seen, in June of 2004, 23-year-old Virginia Cloven vanished. Virginia was born on August 7, 1981 in Los Chavez, New Mexico, which is just outside of Albuquerque. And she was born to parents Elizabeth and Robert Cloven and had two brothers named Robert and Christopher. Virginia is remembered as a happy child, a girly girl who loved to do makeup. Her father, Robert, remembered, quote, she was a really humorous girl. She would take everything in stride. She would try to lie to you and then come in and tell you the truth anyways two minutes later. The teachers wanted to adopt her. But Virginia's happy-go-lucky nature faded when at 17, she lost her brother, Robert. Following an altercation, Robert was actually shot and killed, and according to Virginia's parents, the family was never the same after that. Robert remembered sadly, quote, Virginia couldn't stand to live in the same house anymore, so she moved out to Albuquerque, and thus, Virginia and her brother Christopher left home. So Virginia left the small census-designated place of Los Chavez to live with her grandfather in Albuquerque. And it was there that she met a new boyfriend with whom she moved in with quickly after they started dating. But when he was struck by a car and put into a coma, Virginia was left with nothing and had no way to support herself. Something crazy about this case to me is all these women experienced such tragic loss before they were killed, whether somebody they loved was put in prison or somebody they loved died. Like it's a really weird um, common denominator here. Well, I mean, we talked about that kind of in the beginning of the episode about how the life expectancy in this area was only 42 years old. Very, very true. So because, um, you know, because her boyfriend was killed, she lost the apartment that she shared with him. And so then she was turned onto the streets of Albuquerque where she was just lost and still healing from the multiple traumas that she suffered in the past few years of her life. With this, she turned to drugs and sex work. In June of 2004, which is the last time her parents heard from her, she called them to let them know that she had a new boyfriend that she was, quote, probably going to marry. Virginia claimed that he had just been released from prison, but her dad, Robert, recalled, quote, we said we'd like to meet him, but we never heard from her again. After that, everything just went dead. 
Months later, by October, they knew something was wrong and reported their daughter missing. And just as with every other family, the Clovens talked to the police and hung up signs, driving through the seediest neighborhoods of the city to hang flyers and ask around. But there was no sign of their daughter. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volix XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. 
Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. For award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash going west. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Shortly after Virginia was last seen, Cinnamon Elks disappeared. 31-year-old Cinnamon, who is the third to last but the oldest known victim of the West Mesa murderer, was last spotted in July of 2004. Cinnamon was born in Albuquerque on October 24, 1972, and her mom Diana said, quote, This is not what I brought up my daughter to be, but drugs stole everything from us. They start stealing your checks, forging them for money, then they quit coming home at all. She missed out on so much. Cinnamon had two children at the time of her disappearance, but was prone to taking off for days, weeks, or even months at a time and leaving them with her mom, Diana. After the last time that she saw her daughter, Diana basically thought that this was the case, but when Cinnamon neglected to call Diana on her birthday, she knew that something was seriously wrong, and so she reported Cinnamon missing. And her remains were later confirmed with dental records. The disappearance of these women were coming more quickly now, with one per month for much of 2004. Julie Nieto was last seen shortly before her 24th birthday in August of 2004. She and her mother Eleanor were at Eleanor's father's house together, wishing him well before he headed into surgery that day. But when Eleanor returned from the hospital, 
Julie was gone, and Eleanor never heard from or saw her daughter again. Unable to reach her, Eleanor reported her daughter missing. Julie Cindy Nieto was born on August 28, 1980. Her mom, Eleanor, remembers her as a happy, fun child who was, quote, a joy to be around. She started high school but struggled to keep up, so she actually entered Job Corps, which offers free education and workforce training to teenagers and young adults. I actually had family members that were in Job Corps. Oh, so, really? Yeah. Well, it seems very resourceful. So Eleanor said later that she was so thankful that Julie had done so because they actually eventually identified her body from the dental records that she had provided to Job Corps. Julie had a young son named Dominic, and Eleanor called her daughter a doting mother. Eleanor knew she wouldn't have left her son long-term, saying, quote, I know she wouldn't leave her son behind for anything. That was her number one priority, was her son. Eleanor remembers her daughter beginning to struggle with drug use at the age of 19, and that she begged her to get treatment, but that Julie was sadly never able to work through her addiction. After Julie was reported missing, rumors began circulating the community, and soon after, Julie's sister Valerie came to Eleanor and told her that she heard that Julie had been killed. She didn't have many details, and Eleanor remembers that she was, quote, scared to talk about it, but Valerie seemed to take this to heart and also took Julie's loss the hardest. A few years later, Julie's dental records confirmed that she was the fourth victim of the West Mesa murderer, or at least amongst the known victims. Right. And the final victim of the West Mesa murderer was last seen on September 22nd, 2004 by her dad, Dan Valdez. The last time he saw his 22-year-old daughter, Michelle, he remembered that, quote, it seemed as if she knew something was going to happen. Like Cinnamon's mom, Michelle's mom Karen knew something was wrong when Michelle neglected to call to wish her mom happy birthday. She was reported missing a few months later in February of 2005. Gina Michelle Valdez, who went by Michelle, was born on August 1st, 1982 to parents Karen Jackson and Dan Valdez, and she had two sisters named Camille and Kendra. Karen remembers her daughter as bubbly, kind, and fun to be around and that her smile lit up a room. She was always a dreamer and she had big plans for herself. She loved to sing and actually wanted to be a singer or perhaps follow in the footsteps of her aunt who became a lawyer. Michelle fell into drug use as a teen, but Karen strives to make sure that her addiction doesn't define her daughter's legacy. And she said, quote, everybody has faults and hers was drugs, but she was still a human being. She was a good big sister. She always looked out for her sisters. And she was a mom who cared about her kids' accomplishments. Drug addiction certainly wasn't the lifestyle that she wanted. She actually wanted help, but she didn't have the money or the insurance, so it was very hard for her to get it. Michelle left behind two young children, a daughter named Angelica and a son named Jeremiah. And sadly, her family would come to find out only after her remains were confirmed that she was four months pregnant. A fierce advocate for justice of these girls, Michelle's father, Dan, became somewhat of a spokesman for the victims and their families, but sadly, he did pass away in 2015. 
But now into the investigation once again. So by the end of the excavation of the site on which the victims were found, the bodies of nine women, two teenagers, and the remains of Michelle's baby were recovered. But it's entirely possible that there are more victims who were buried in different locations or just have not been found yet. The only two items that were not human remains uncovered alongside the bodies were one acrylic fingernail and a tree tag from a sapling tree that was traced back to a local store, which we are going to touch on here in a minute. According to satellite images from the area, it appears that the last victim was buried in 2005 due to the disruption of the dirt, which means the remains all sat there for four years just waiting to be found. Investigators combed through the area meticulously as some of the women were buried as far down as 21 feet. That is crazy. When I read that detail, I was like, that, that just seems... That's super deep. Yeah, like most people don't do that. Or most killers don't do that. Right, I mean, yeah, 21 feet is super, super deep. They were really trying to make sure that nobody found those remains, but luckily they were. So in order of discovery, the remains found were Victoria Chavez... Gina Michelle Valdez, Cinnamon Elks, Julie Nieto, Monica Condelaria, Veronica Romero, Doreen Marquez, Solania Edwards, Virginia Clovin, and Evelyn Salazar. And it was determined that Victoria, Cinnamon, Julie, and Michelle knew each other prior to their murders. It took close to a year to identify everyone, like I said earlier, just because of the elements and the amount of decay, and the official cause of their deaths was homicidal violence, but no official cause of death could be determined just due to the amount of time that had passed. Well, I think you could probably rule out... Um, you could definitely rule out multiple things, yeah, like gunshot yeah, Gunshot wound, yeah, by looking at the skulls and Absolutely. things like that. But, but yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that they just have no idea how these women uh, died. Yeah, I mean, it would really be good to know just for the investigation, especially because of what we're going to talk about here in a minute about the suspects and, you know, their, their MOs. So from the onset of the investigation, while families grieved and begged for answers, the investigators received criticism for how they handled the disappearance of the women. Many family members of the victims remember their concerns being diminished by law enforcement. Most were told that the women were over 18 and that they had likely just run off and would be back, which, I mean, we've heard about a billion times in investigations. Ray Schultz, who was the chief of police at the time, said, quote, it's not against the law to be missing in America, especially if you're an adult, which I just think, you know, again, goes to prove that these families were right, that law enforcement were trying to diminish their concerns. But the families claim their concerns being silenced was more than just the assumption that the women had left on their own volition. It was because police knew that most of these women were engaged in, quote, high-risk lifestyles. A local professor and serial killer expert, Dirk Gibson, explained, quote, There hasn't been the degree of public fear and alarm that you might expect. There has been very little publicity. There's a sense of physical remoteness. This place was very removed. There has been little pressure on the police to investigate. Albuquerqueans don't relate to the victims. But police argued this, saying that they've been hard at work since before the bodies were discovered, and not just due to the efforts of Detective Ida Lopez. 
The FBI were brought in to create a suspect profile for the type of person that they believed to be responsible, and police scoured the neighborhoods from which the women were believed to have disappeared. One very persistent theory is that the killer may have been a police officer himself. Again, just a theory, but let's crack into it. So according to some of the families of the victims, multiple women had mentioned being afraid of an officer named Dave. One woman on a forum dedicated to the West Mesa murders even wrote that she had gone on a date with a man who apparently admitted that he had murdered these women, but that when she turned to law enforcement to report it, she was shut down. She explained, quote, law enforcement is involved with the crime and cover up. In order to actually solve this crime, it would devastate the integrity of the Albuquerque Police Department as a couple of the individuals ahead of the case helped kill the women. Again, these are her words, not ours, and also speculation. Yeah, total speculation. This is just uh, something that she claims to be true, but there's really no evidence to back it up. And of course, police negated these claims, stating that if the murderer had claimed to be with the Albuquerque Police Department, that he had simply been posing as an officer. And I will agree that we have seen cases where killers do pose as police officers, so it's it's not too far-fetched. But it also is interesting that they're saying it like it's factual, like, oh, if they said they were an officer, then they were posing because they're not one of us. I mean, hopefully they they looked into that to make sure that that is in fact true. Yeah. Um, especially since this does seem to be a concern amongst multiple people in the community. But but yeah, they they're saying that it wasn't any of them. Now, sadly, as we know, sex workers are an easy target for a serial killer or easy prey for a serial killer, especially in the case of these victims, most of whom were known to struggle with drug addiction. Many of their families knew not to expect regular check-ins from them, so their disappearances went unreported for weeks, if not months. But police have sworn publicly and to the families that they are taking this case every bit as seriously as any other disappearance or homicide investigation. The police spokesman said, quote, We have literally ruled out hundreds of people. The police department has not forgotten about this case. The two most likely suspects have never been formally connected to the case, but in the opinion of the police and many of the families of the victims, one of them is likely to be involved. So let's discuss them now. Yes, let's get into it. So on December 17th, 2006, so a few years before the bodies were found and a year or so after the final victim was buried, A 39-year-old man named Lorenzo Montoya was meeting up with a 19-year-old exotic dancer at his home. But when she didn't come home and her boyfriend hadn't heard from her, the boyfriend headed to her last known whereabouts, which was Lorenzo's home. The boyfriend drove up and witnessed Lorenzo holding a flashlight and dragging the dancer, who had been strangled to death and wrapped in a sheet, and loading her into his car. This is insane. Like, I don't, I can't remember a case that we've ever covered where a killer has actually been caught in the act of, of, you know, something like this, like loading them into the car or dragging, like, this is crazy. So crazy. So completely taken aback by what he was witnessing, the dancer's boyfriend shot and killed Lorenzo on the spot in good riddance asshole. Lorenzo's home, which was a trailer at 4000 Blake Road Southwest in Albuquerque, 
was just a seven-minute drive from where the West Mesa murder victims were recovered. Satellite images from the area when the murders were taking place provided tire tracks leading to and away from the burial site. And get this, they matched the truck that Lorenzo drove at the time. Insane. Crazy. So when investigators dug deeper into his background, he seemed like an even more likely suspect. Oh yes, he did. He was known to frequent the war zone, which we've mentioned many times, and had solicited and assaulted sex workers multiple times. He also had a history of domestic violence and a rape charge against him that was somehow dropped. And his ex-girlfriend even explained that he had threatened to kill her and bury her in Lime Rock. When police sifted through Lorenzo's possessions after his death, they came across multiple homemade sex tapes that he made with various sex workers, some of whom horrifically reportedly appeared to be asleep or even dead. In 2016, the Albuquerque Journal released a video from Lorenzo's archives in which he can be heard ripping duct tape and fussing with a crinkling sounding material, potentially a sheet or a garbage bag. Some have pointed out that it sounds like there's whimpering or struggling happening in the background. And Lorenzo can be heard saying, tranquilo or quiet. And unfortunately, because he was killed, there hasn't yet been a way to definitively tie him to the victims of West Mesa. I really think he is such a likely suspect of this case just because of what we know that he's capable of. Like, all of this evidence is so horrific. And I mean, the tire tracks, like... I don't know how it couldn't be this guy, but years later, around the time that the body started being pulled from the Mesa, a woman called Albuquerque police and stated that she believed her ex-husband may have been involved in the murders. April Gillen said that her ex-husband, Joseph Blea, had a history of violent crimes against women and was known to frequent neighborhoods that were notorious for sex work. He also had ties to the West Mesa and would make frequent trips there to drop landscaping waste from his work there late at night. In 2003, Joseph was arrested for publicly exposing himself to a woman, and when his car was searched, police recovered both rope and electrical tape. Between 1990 and the year when the bodies were recovered, again 2009, Joseph had over 140 run-ins with police. That is so many. In 2014, Joseph was arrested for multiple home invasions and subsequent rapes of girls as young as 13 years old, dating back to the 1980s. DNA from a decades-old rape kit was finally retested in 2010, which eventually linked him to the crime. And get this, his DNA was also found on the clothing of a sex worker who was found deceased in the war zone, but he was never charged with her murder. Which is just complete bullshit that his DNA would be on her and they couldn't charge him for that. Well, and the tree tag found at the scene of the burials that I mentioned earlier was linked to a store that Joseph was known to frequent. Obviously, I mean, that does seem weird in hindsight, maybe not that weird, but it's kind of weird to me. And according to a cellmate of his in prison, Joseph referred to the West Mesa girls as trashy, yet admitted to having hired many of them. 
and suspiciously, his daughter found women's underwear and jewelry that didn't belong to her or her mother in Joseph's shed in their backyard. But we're unsure if any of them are linked to the West Mesa murder victims. But we do know that in June of 2015, Joseph Blea was sentenced to 90 years in prison for the rape cases. But he has never been formally linked to or charged with the West Mesa murders. And also, good riddance. Good riddance, yeah. Two, I mean, two very good suspects here. Yeah, absolutely. In the summer of 2014, Detective Ida Lopez retired and Detective Mark Maroney took over. While he claims that it's still an active investigation, he laments, quote, Police budgets are stretched thin. There's so little money and there's so many crimes. Investigating a 10-year-old crime when the police think that the victim had it coming, there's just no incentive for that. Why would you word it like that? I know, that's just so badly worded. But investigator Liz Thompson assured a reporter, quote, I want to dispel the sad and disturbing myths that are out there about the investigation, such as investigators know who did this but aren't doing anything because the person is dead, that there are only two suspects, or the worst, that we haven't solved it because the investigators simply don't care about these women. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Hundreds of people have been interviewed. Many persons of interest have been identified. Tips continue to come in almost every single week. Every tip is evaluated. Another tip from the public led to an expansive search in the summer of 2021. Sadly, the search did not produce anything more in the way of answers. But we appreciate every tip because we never know which one may be the tip that solves this mystery. We hope that if there's someone out there who's hearing this and knows that during the construction of homes or their particular home that something suspicious was found but wasn't brought to the attention of the authorities, we would like those people to still come forward. The families have really leaned on each other for support and many have kept in touch. For a while, they would do meetups along with the children that the women left behind. Now, the site of their discoveries is blocked off by a cinder block wall and dotted with trash. Jamie's mother, Eleanor, frequently goes there to clean it up and to leave flowers and balloons for the lost girls, always 12 for the 11 victims and Michelle's unborn baby, which is so sweet of her to do. For years, the city has promised a memorial park with one tree planted for every victim, but unfortunately, the funding and permits have never come through. Former Chief of Police Ray Schultz said the reason for this is, quote, I've been to community meetings about that. Everyone wants to build a memorial, but is this going to become a distraction to the community? Is it going to hurt land values? Unfortunately, I've actually heard that come up in a meeting before. Too many people in the community look at women who are victimized in this way as being disposable, and they shouldn't. I mean, kind of saying that, oh, well, is this going to look bad on the community if we have a memorial for these victims? It's like, no, it's it should be done out of respect. I, you know, and then also turning around and then saying that... Um, these women are not disposable it's like well then don't treat them as if they are like you know figure out how to get these funds together so that you can create this memorial park i think that's important 
Yeah, I totally agree. And that's just the saddest part about this case and cases like it is just the way that people think about it, even though that's what we really tried to do in this episode to show who these women were as a whole and not just what they did for a portion of their life to make money. Like, it's just sad the way that so many people think about it and all the misinformation that is being spread about these victims, even down to their ages, because there's so much misreporting in this case as well. Now, a reward of $100,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the murderer of the West Mesa 11 is still being offered. If you have any information, please call the 118th Street Task Force at 1-877-765-8273. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And on Friday, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. Yes, we will. Remember, this case is very much unsolved. Even though we do have a couple very likely-seeming suspects on the list, or police do at least, um, please make sure that you share this case. And again, if you're looking for more episodes, check out our Apple subscriptions or our Patreon for 86 full-length ad-free bonus episodes, including the one we released just yesterday on the Dupont de Ligones murders. That case is so tragic and crazy, and we just released it, and it's our longest bonus episode yet. Also, if you want to see photos and videos from this case and many, many more, head on over to our socials, Instagram at Going West Podcast, Twitter at Going West Pod, and we also have a discussion group on Facebook that you can check out and talk about these cases. Absolutely, and we love to chat with you guys there. So thank you guys for tuning in again, and we'll see you in a few days. Love every single one of ya. All right, guys, so for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger.